to another episode of the Growing Faith Podcast. My name is Rick McClatchy. I'm your host today. I'm a staff pastor at the Rocky Butte campus of Manor House in Portland, Oregon. We are a non-denominational church really in the Portland metro area and down in Eugene, where our heart is simply to help people live like Jesus and share his love. We want to follow him and we want to do what he says and we want to love people along the way and uh, proclaim his greatness to all of those around us. And the purpose of the Growing Faith podcast is we want to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. We want to we want to share things with the quote unquote average Joe in the church that that all of us are called to be uh, to be in the ministry. There isn't a oh you know a certain group of people get to be in full time ministry. No, all of us are called to be in the ministry to help proclaim the greatness of God everywhere we go with our lives. Um, a big part of that actually is uh, us digging into the Word of God and allowing the Word of God to get into us and to transform the way we think. Um, so that we act better and uh, we are a better representation of who God, um, of who God is, because His Word reveals who He is. And uh, because I like to bring in people that are smarter than me on the topics that we talk about, I am inviting in once again my great friend uh, and actually just a personal hero of mine, uh, Lanny Hubbard from Portland Bible College. Welcome in, Lanny. Glad to have you back. Thank you. All right, so um, today we're actually jumping into the topic of Bible translations. Um, it's, you know, now that we have the, the digital world, um, we, we can see, you know, if I go up in, in uh, the version Bible app, I can see uh, um, my recently used translations are King James Version, ESV, MSG, NLT, CSB, uh, and then there's all kinds of other letters, you know, there's AMP and CEB and CEV. And I mean, we could just go on and on and on of all of the different options out there. And quite frankly, we could be quite confused. <laughs> so um, ultimately, help us help us understand today what what is the deal with Bible translations? Why are there so many? How do I know how to pick one? Is there only one? Because some people out there would say there's only one, and you got to read that one. Um, what, like, talk to me about this whole idea of Bible translations. Thanks, Rick. Uh, we talked last week when we looked at the why of biblical study, and and it's the big why question. It's the motivator, the thing that pushes us. But this week, we're looking at what it is we study. We're looking at the the book itself. And that is the piece of literature that we're going to be pouring over and putting all of our energy into. And, uh, the Bible has a lot to say about itself, even as we go through. There's a whole area of theology. It's called bibliology, which it's the doctrine of revelation. How does God pass revelation on? How, how does he communicate with um, that stuff to us? How do we as humans come in contact with uh, the communication, the revelation of God? And, and it's a whole area worth studying and so forth. But what we have found down through the history of the Bible then is that there are different times in history when God has specifically told people, write this down. I'm going to give you an idea and I want you to write it down. And the reason I want you to write it down is so that it can be shared with your children and your children's children. And uh, the non-literary culture 
that you see in so much of the Old Testament world, most of your people didn't read. They didn't have books to read anyway. And it was an oral culture, and they relied upon the accuracy and the preservation of things through a process we know as orality, as storytelling and narrative. But there came times, especially when you get into the oldest portions of the Bible, uh, the legal section back in the Pentateuch when Moses is writing the law, these things are not easily remembered because there's so much detail. You have to have a heifer that's a year old and no blemish, and this is what you offer. And that detail needs to be written down. Otherwise, people won't remember it all. And so God comes and he talks to Moses and write it down. He's going to say, Daniel, write it down, seal the book. He's going to say the same thing to John. And so we see that as God communicates with us, there's times that that revelation needs to be put in a written format. And the reason is to secure the message, to help it to be preserved over the years. And this is all part of the, what we call uh, the process of revelation that God gives to us. Now, how that gets to us now is an elaborate process. And there's a couple of areas that I want to look at today. And, and one of them is called the, just the process of translation. When we look at translation that is there, when you go back into history itself and you see that God worked with uh, people at a certain time uh, in history and so forth, what you will find then is that as period uh, time goes on and politics change, nations change, one nation conquers another. And when they do that, oftentimes the conquering nation will impose a new language upon the people. Uh, they used to speak Akkadian, but now we've got to learn a new language because the people that we serve, they have a different mother tongue. And you go down through history, and, and what you'll find is that in these periods of transition, and that has required then for the Word of God to be translated into a new language because a new generation coming along may not speak the language of their parents as fluently as possible. And we see a, a great example of this in the Old Testament, and that is when the, the people of Judah were taken into the Babylonian captivity, and when they were carried over there and they were ruled by the Babylonians for those 70 years, uh, the Babylonians did not speak Hebrew. The Babylonians spoke now uh, the language, the Aramaic language that they spoke over there. And so the captives, the Jewish people that were taken back, they had to learn the new language. Uh, the children that were born during captivity, they would be brought up with Aramaic as their first language. Hebrew was their first language. And since you're there for 70 years, and that's how long the captivity was, by the time the Jewish people went back, you're two generations out. You're two generations along, and most of the people that are going back to the land of Israel after the Babylonian captivity, they speak Aramaic as their first language, which means that Hebrew then, they may be able to pick up words and phrases, but Hebrew is not their first language. What this requires then is if they're going to hear the word of God and understand it, the word of God has to be in the Aramaic language, and it requires the first of the translations. And so you're going to find men like Ezra the scribe of the Old Testament would translate from the Hebrew to the Aramaic so that these people could hear it in their vernacular and, and you know, grasp and know more of it that was there. And so we go from there. You can go down through history. The Jews go back to the land of Palestine in about the 4th century B.C., about 
323, they're conquered by Greece. And so now it's no longer Aramaic, but Greek is going to be that. And then the Romans come in in 63 uh, BC, and guess what? They're going to bring Latin in, and Latin is going to become the official language of the Roman Empire. So every time you find a political change, it's imposed now a new language change, which means then that the old words have to be translated into a new language for the people to understand it. So that's how translation work came into existence. It was out of necessity to pass on the words that were there. Now, the original documents of the Bible, what we call the autographs, these are the, you know, when Moses wrote his first copy of Genesis, there was not a copy before. This is his first completed copy. That's called an autograph. And that autograph is going to be there. Now, as time goes on, other people are going to want access to that, but it's only one scroll. So what they have to do is they have to make copies of that scroll. And it's a very elaborate process because they didn't have Xerox. They didn't uh, have type you know, set like we do. There was Everything was handwritten. And so to take a copy of Genesis and make an exact copy, you had to literally write it word for word. And it would be a handwritten copy. And it would be very time consuming and it would be very expensive, which meant that most people couldn't have them. And so as time went on, more and more people were given to being copyists, just so there'd be more you know, volumes of this going out to different individuals. And these copies would go out. And these copies, because they're human writers, these copies would sometimes have in them differences, different spelling or a word that was left out than the copy that they originally came from. And these are what we call transcribal errors. And so uh, a copy that goes out may be different in one or two points from the original there, but yet it's going to have the heart and the majority of what's there. Now, the printed material that they used back there uh, didn't last forever. Now, you guys know it. You buy a, a pulp novel and it's on a cheap pulp paper, and after about a couple of years, the paper begins to turn yellow, begins to weather the pages, the back breaks in your, in your paperback book. And by the end of 20 years, that paperback showing it's pretty ratty. Well, if you take some of these old parchments, these old scrolls that these people have, and you unroll them and roll them and unroll them and trap, you know, pass them around and they move from one place to another. And they do this not just for 20 years, but they do it for centuries. But these things wear out. The ink wears out, and before long, you miss a letter, it kind of just disappears. We get a crack in, in the parchment that is there. And so your copies now begin to disappear. They either begin to deteriorate or they get filed away in a personal library that's there somewhere. And so you have copies scattered all over the place. But today we don't have originals. We aren't aware of any of the original books of the Bible, the original autographs that we have. What we have is some copies and we can go back pretty close to some of the originals back there in them. But um, we don't have the originals as far as we know. Now, what then happened was this. As Christianity, we'll go to the book of Acts and read in chapter 8 of the book of Acts, uh, the revival began to spread. And then as persecution spread, Christians were driven all over the Roman world at that point, and different churches began to appear. Paul started churches. He started them in Macedonia. He started them in Greece. He started them in Asia Minor. He would go to Spain and so forth. He would eventually go to Rome. We have the church in Jerusalem. We have the church in Antioch that's going to send Paul out. There grew strong centers of Christianity. These are places where there were very successful churches. There were some 
strong leaders in rich material. And so they began to collect these different handwritten scrolls. They would collect them and they would put them in their libraries. And these then became centers of Christianity scattered throughout the Mediterranean world. And there were probably about four major ones that we're going to see by the time we get into the second, third century. Alexandria in Egypt was one of them. There were a lot of Christians that were down there. Caesarea and the land of Israel that was there. A lot of the Jewish, the original apostles, they would connect with there. You've got uh, the city of Rome, which later is going to become the headquarters of the Western Church, the Roman Catholic Church. And then the city, which at that time was called Byzantium, which later was called Constantinople, and then today we call it Istanbul. And that became the center, the religious center. Now, these great centers of Christianity developed libraries, and these libraries are where they stored all of their documents that were there. And these great libraries then would preserve and use these and copy them. They had scribes that were there, and that's their purpose for them. Now, what happened at a time is that each of these centers would have certain manuscripts of the Bible that would be there. And so the scholars in that city would use those manuscripts and they would make all their copies from them. And so if there were little changes in those copies, then it would come off in all of the copies that they took off that original. And so you get a little bit different text that's going to come from Caesarea than came from Alexandria or came from Rome and so forth. And this is where we get our our body of text. We have certain bodies or families now of these ancient copies of these ancient manuscripts. And that just gives you a little bit of the history. Why did we have translations? But how did these different manuscripts get into different locations? Why did they center there? And all of it is a process that we see. Our Bible today has been translated in a number of languages. Uh, today, it's translated more than any book uh, in the world into more different languages, complete language, complete Bibles, as well as partial Bibles and so forth. It is the most translated piece of literature that it is. But back in the time of the early centuries of the church, there were different versions of the Bible that were out. And I'll give you some names. You have, for instance, the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint was the Old Testament, but it was not in Hebrew, it was in Greek. They started writing this about 280 BC, and then by the time of Christ, it was finished. And they had translated all the different books of the Old Testament into Greek, because by that time, Greek was the, the trade language. It was a language of the marketplace and so forth. But as time went on a little bit, then you're going to find another area, and that's the area up there, Antioch, where Paul went out of, that area in Armenia up there. They'd had a language and they started developing their own library and they had a number of the early church fathers. And they had a language called Syriac, which is a form of Aramaic. And so their translations, their manuscripts were all written in Syriac. And they used to go back to the second century. And they read these in their church gathering. They didn't read the Hebrew, they didn't read the Greek, they read the, the Syriac at this point. And they used that in the Eastern churches, the Orthodox churches up until actually quite recently. And uh, the Roman church, a matter of time, they switched over to Latin. And so it was inevitable that the Bible would be translated into Latin. We call that the Vulgate. And we go back into the 5th century AD. And from that time on until literally the last century, uh, if you go to a Catholic Mass, it would be in Latin. Uh, the, the, the prayer, the lectionaries, everything would be read in Latin because that is the version or the translation of the Bible that they had used. It was only in the 60s at the Vatican II conference that they gave permission 
for the mass to use the vernacular of the local people that were there. So if you're a Catholic priest and you're and your parish was in Spain, you could use Spanish instead of Latin because people wouldn't understand the Latin, but they would understand the Spanish. So, I mean, that's only just a few years ago, 60 years ago, but it had been Latin. And then you've got later the, the Old Testament, the Jewish, the Hebrew Old Testament, uh, developed into what we call the Masoretic Text. This was a document that was finalized about 900 AD. And this was the text that was used in the synagogues for years. It's the text that was used by biblical scholars for years. When they translate the Old Testament, they would go back to this 9th century AD, because that's the oldest uh, Hebrew complete version that we had of the Old Testament up until that time. And so depending where you're at and what church you're in, you either use the Greek, the Old Testament, or you use the Syriac, or you use the Latin, the Vulgate. And so they had their own translations because of So we're there. Now what's happened though uh, with time is that some of those early copies that I mentioned were put in these great libraries and they were forgotten in those libraries. They were shelved away, even though they're beautiful and very valuable, they were shelved away. People would choose to use a newer one that was less ragged and they used a newer one, but they kept the older one and left it on the shelf there. And so they'd go and they'd revise this newer one and they'd update it as time goes on and so forth. And so church history would have this constant evolution of, of documents that went. But archaeology, great science archaeology came and it began to do some things. And that is it began to go back and investigate some of these old now libraries and these old collections of books. And they would find documents older than what we knew existed at that point. And this is exactly what happened. Now I'll give you an example of this. Uh, when the King James Bible was translated in 1611 into English, it was translated from a Greek New Testament that was probably written and developed in the late 1500s. So the Greek text was developed literally just a couple of decades earlier than when the English text, the King James Bible was. So the Greek text was very close. It was a 16th century Greek text. And now you've got a 17th century English, they're very close to each other. People would use those younger or more recent Hebrew texts at this point and said, this is the one we're going to use. And so they did. They did that for a long time. Until one day, this little discoverer goes wandering around and he finds, he goes to Rome and he goes into the Vatican Library and suddenly he finds an old copy of the New Testament. Not written in the 16th century AD. It's written in the 4th century AD. And this thing is now 1,200 years older than the Greek text. It's closer to the original that's been there. And they bring it out now and they said, whoa, maybe we should be using this in our translation rather than the later text that's there. 1844, uh, a count came from Europe and he was down in the Sinai Peninsula. He went to a Catholic monastery. He went into their library and he found an ancient document. It was a complete New Testament. And it was probably originally written in about 325 AD. And it made it the oldest, complete, intact New Testament that we had. Uh, the King James was written from a 16th century manuscript. This was a 4th century manuscript. It was back there. And now when they begin to look at these, then guess what? The King James is based on a young one, but maybe translations that came after that are going to go back to some of the older manuscripts, closer to the originals that were back there. 
And so it starts this whole new cycle. Mm -hmm. of these are our base decks. How do we relate all these Greek texts together and everything else? So that's the process. And archaeology is an ongoing thing. I mean, think about it this way. And let's go back to the last century. Oldest complete Hebrew Old Testament that we had up to the middle of the 1900s was finished in 900 AD. That is the, the oldest complete one we had until 1947 when a little shepherd boy was out by the Dead Sea, threw a rock up into an opening in the rocks, heard a shattering of pottery, went up and found this clay pot that had an old manuscript in it. And he took it out, he gave it to uh, a scholar that was in town. They found out it was a copy of scripture. And they found out that there were other copies that were there too. And so they began to uncover them and what we call the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they found literally copies of every book except for one in the Old Testament. But these weren't written in 900 AD. They were written in 100 BC. That made these copies of the Old Testament a millennium older now than anything that we had had up to that point. And so now scholars are saying, if we're going to translate the Old Testament, we've at least got to go back and check because that's the kind of Hebrew that would have been spoken in the day of Jesus. It was written just 100 years before his time. And so these ongoing archaeological discoveries bring in new ancient manuscripts that we need to add to what we already have to give us a better look at maybe what some of the original <laughs> texts uh, have uncovered. And it's interesting that. I spoke at the church here on uh, the formation, uh, the trustworthiness of the text. Oh, it was about a year ago. We did a series on the Bible at Manor House, and we did it. And, and just one month later, after I spoke there, uh, one of my students who now works in the World Bible Museum back in Washington, D.C., he's one of the curators back there. Uh, he came and says, I discovered cave 12 and 13 at the Dead Sea Scrolls which means that the saga of the Dead Sea Scrolls is, is continuing to go on. And so archaeology wow. is always discovering these new things, which means that our window into the ancient world and our window into these ancient texts is constantly improving. It's developing as we go along. So that's a little bit about some of the ancient, why they translate them, what happened to some of those ancient translations and so forth. Uh, but those are primarily dealing with the original languages, the Greek and the Hebrew and maybe the Latin. And so forth. Now let's go to the English because that's what most of us are working with. When we look at the history of the English Bible, it's it's relatively young uh, compared to some of these others. We go back into the first examples of English translations, and it's going to be back uh, between the years 900 and 1300 AD. Now English had existed longer than that. But this is the first time we find examples of the Bible, the text of the Bible actually being expressed in English. Now, these were not Bibles. They were what we call diaglots. These are interlinearies where they would be a book. A lot of them were used for devotions for the Catholic monks. They were called lectionaries or devotionaries. They would print a line in the Latin, and then they would go through and print a line underneath it, uh, the translation of the Latin into English, so that that gave uh, a tool to the priest that as he taught from the Latin, he could express it in the English in a way that the audience could understand. And so the, there were no copies of the, of the English Bible during this period of time. To be honest with you, it was illegal. Uh, it was against the law. 
in England to translate the Bible into English. Because at this time, most of the people that went to church came out of a Catholic background. And to them, they got used to the fact that the only language that the Bible should be written in is, is Latin, because that's been their Bible since the fourth century. So to put it in the vulgar contemporary English, no, they, they didn't think it was the vulgar tongue. So they not only disagreed with translating it, they actually prohibited it. And if you were found translating the Bible in any way, you were an enemy of the church, you would be prosecuted, you would be fined. And later what you found, some people would put to death because it was against the law to translate the Bible into English in England. Okay. And that's one of the great oxymoronish things that we find in ancient history. Seriously. The guy that broke Yeah, it is. The guy that broke the mold was John Wycliffe. And he broke the mold in the 14th century, about the year 1379. And he was part of the first waves of the Reformation. The full Reformation didn't surface until 1570. The Reformation started. It started with men like John Husson, with John Wycliffe, who saw the desperate need to get the Word of God into Europe at that time. And so what Wycliffe did is he went back and he translated the Bible into the English language against the law. It was all undercover. And these Bibles were all handwritten. So he was making copies of the Bible handwritten in English, circulated around and so forth. But they were very few and they were very expensive. and The common people couldn't have it. That's why today the Wycliffe Bible Translators takes their name from him because he is the first man to translate the whole Bible now into the English language. And so he is our forerunner there. Um, he died though, and after his death, they tried him as a heretic. They dug up his bones and they burned his bones as a heretic because he broke the law and that was translating the scripture into English. Of course, at that point, he didn't care. He was dead, and so it's fine. In the coming years, though, as the groundswell of the, of the Reformation began to emerge, in the next century, the 1400s, about 1450, 1452, amazing discovery took place, and that was. Uh, the printing press. Now, it wasn't discovered then, but it was it was introduced into Europe. The Chinese had developed the printing press block printing centuries earlier, but it was the Gutenberg press in 1452 that brought movable type and everything else to become a reality in Europe. And now for the first time, they could mass produce books and that brought the cost down, which means that books were more affordable people more people could get copies of them and there are more copies available and so more people learned how to read at this point because there were more books to read and so the gutenberg press made the bible available the first book printed was the gutenberg bible which was german and it was printed in press before and so it was in there and so now the word of god is beginning to go out now the reformation is what brought the the turn of events uh, Reformation with guys like Martin Luther and uh, John Calvin and so forth. And what we see in the 16th century is an absolute explosion in Bible translations. I mean, you've got this little trickle of a few lectionaries, John Wycliffe's work and so forth, a few examples of this. But when we get to the 16th century, it literally explodes. Because what happens in there is that once the printing press comes in, now we don't just want handwritten copies. We want actually printed on a printing press. And the guy that broke the barrier here was William Tyndale. And he started the Tyndale Bible. It's the first Bible that was printed on a printing press. 
And so they began to do it. And then there were others that followed him. Uh, there was the Coverdale Bible and the Matthews Bible and the Great Bible and Roger Taverner did his. And then John Wycliffe had his translation called the Geneva Bible, which took the Bible and it reduced it down to a smaller format uh, because a lot of the Bibles were very large and elaborate with filigrees and, and block art on them and very expensive. But he wanted to make a Bible that people could actually afford and have in their homes. And so the Geneva Bible now provided that, became the Bible of the homes there. And you had the Bishop's Bible and the Douay-Rheims Bible, which is a Catholic Bible. Uh, they came, and all of those were in that 16th century. So just boom, boom, boom. Every decade, there's another English translation that's beginning to emerge. And uh, eventually, by the time you get to the Bishop's Bible, they realize the church leaders, we've got to lift the ban off of English Bibles. And so they did. They lifted the ban off of English Bibles. Suddenly they're legal and now they're putting these in the churches. They're reading it in English in the public worship service and the thing just takes off from there. Uh, in the early 1600s, the translation, the English translation that probably became the most dominant and influential, and that's the King James. Uh, the King James Bible first edition came out in 1611. It was the work of James I, King of England. He came down, and we have to realize why he did this. It's not because he was a spiritual man. His nation was split in half. Half of them were loyal to the Vatican and Catholic, and half of them were loyal to the Church of England. And so there was this great spiritual polarization in England. And so he felt the only way I can solidify my nation is to develop a Bible that both Catholics and Protestants, the Anglicans, can use at this point. And so he commissioned now the King James Bible. And again, it was a political endeavor. It was meant to be done. It was a very good translation. It took them a, a period of time to put it together. And literally, it's going to serve the church for 300 years. Uh, it will be the, the dominant translation uh, to serve the church for it. It was translated from a very young uh, manuscript. I told you that the Greek manuscript uh, was only written a few decades before that. And so, it, came, it did not come from the older manuscripts back in the 4th century. It came from 15th century manuscripts were up there, but it was a great text. And the, a lot of the early revivals of the Reformation and everything, they utilized that text that was there. Um, as time goes on, though, um, and then we get into the later period, the 19th and the 20th century, it's in the, those periods of time, the 19th and 20th, that some of those archaeological discoveries were made that I referred to a little bit ago. Um, the text uh, that was discovered in Mount Sinai, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls and so forth. And now biblical scholarship is gonna begin to develop new Hebrew and Greek texts that we're gonna use as the basis for our English text. So now all the English Bibles after a certain point, and it's about 1883. After about 1883, the new translations are not going to use the same text that was used for the King James. They're going to go back and use some of the older texts that are back there. They're going to refer to the Septuagint. They're actually going to refer to the Syriac. They're going to go back and use the Latin. They're going to put them all together and learn from all the different languages to try to reconstruct some of the original wording that was there. And so you'll find now that when you read Bibles and the flyleaf of your newer translations, it will tell you this is a translation now from a United Bible Society text or from the Nessel Allen text or from the Masoretic text 
and so forth. Why? Because they're using these newer, more eclectic ones that are incorporating the older manuscripts in there. And actually, and to be honest, and some people will complain about this, we have copies of the Bible that are available both Hebrew and Greek. We have a better look, a better catalog of the ancient manuscripts that we understand closer and closer to what the original autographs were like than we've ever had in history. Every archaeological discovery just fine-tunes a little bit more the original wording of some of these texts. And so those some people may <coughs> drink. <laughs> Why some people may criticize some of the newer texts, what we're finding academically is that we're finding great support for some of these older manuscripts that were back there. They're not as smooth, and that's one of the criticisms that people have. They're a little more choppy, but the reason for that is because some of the later ones were actually smoothed out. Uh, they inserted words to make them a little bit more readable and smoothing and so forth. The original ones, just like you write a letter, the first time you write it, you think it's great, then you go back and reread it, and oh, yuck! So you edit it. You come <laughs> through and you smooth it out. Well, it does. So some of the older ones now were a little bit choppy, but they've been edited a little bit with time, and that's where we end up with the text that we've got today. Now, where does this take us to today, and how do we carry all this over? Because we've got all this, literally hundreds. We've got over 200 different English translations of the Bible since Wycliffe first put out his first edition. Some of them are partials uh, and so forth, only the New Testament. Some of them are just partials, the Old Testament and so forth, but there's a lot of them that are out there. And today as we come down, we've got to realize that the translation that's done today, uh, the different publishing companies today, they've got different things that they're considering. Publishing Bibles is a business, and so like any business, they're going to target their reading audience. They want to Put the money into the research and development of a text that people are going to be comfortable with, they're going to be blessed by, and they're going to buy it. They're not going to, this, they're not going to buy these things or put the investment of the money into this if nobody is going to buy them. That's their business. So you look at Thomas Nelson, you look at Zondervan, you look at Crossway. Hey, they write, they put millions of dollars into the development of a new translation because they plan to sell thousands and thousands of Bibles. That's just business. And so you look at it. Now, certain things are considered when they do our new translations today. Number one is this. Which manuscripts do we use? Do we use the older ones or do we use the younger ones, the more recent ones that we have, like the King James Bible and so forth? So which of those? Some would say the, the younger, the Byzantine are better. Some would say the older manuscripts. And so that's a challenge you're going to face. The King James used the younger ones, the newer ones, and when they put out the new King James, they followed suit. They used the texts that were written during that. They didn't go back and use the older ones. They used the younger ones because they used the text line that the King James did. But any of you who use your ESVs, they go back to the old one. Your ESV, your NASB, your CSB, they go back to your older texts that are back there. Some of those second century and the ones fourth century texts that are there. So you've got the young text and the old text. That's one of the controversies. Then you've got the difference between British and American. Uh, we'd like to think that there's no competition between Europe and America. But what you find in church history is whenever the British people 
produced a new British translation, it would be a few years later that America would come up with an American counterpart to it. And they go back and forth in there. So this is, you've got over there the, the English version, then you've got the English standard, then you've got the new American standard, and you're going back and forth. Again, you know, who's, who understands the Bible better? Is it the Brits or is it the Yanks? You know, who is it? So there's a little competition. <laughs> the Revolutionary War is over, but the sale of Bibles is not. And so we can go back and look at this. Uh, another big change, and this has been a great improvement, a lot of your early Bibles were the work of one man. It's one guy who translated the Bible, and so he had to meticulously take the original and translate it over. Most of your new Bibles are not done by one individual. They're done by a translation committee today. So, for instance, if you take the NIV, there were over 100 scholars that worked on the NIV when it was developed. When you do the uh, 1995 uh, revamp of the NASB or you do the CSB, uh, Christian Standard, you've got over 100 scholars. They divide them up into teams. They say, your team, you do the Pentateuch, you do the Torah. You do the prophets and you do this, and each team has scholars in a language they have a stylus, a writer. So the scholars would give their translation, and the stylus would write it into English in a way that read smoothly. It was consistent with the ideas of the translators, and so it became more of a collaborative effort rather than just the work of one man. And I think that's a healthier thing because when you look at it, uh, for instance, when the NIV did its translation, they picked guys, that, scholars from all kinds of different uh, denominations and groups and backgrounds because they didn't want just their Bible to be a Baptist Bible because they only had Baptist scholars or a Presbyterian Bible because only Presbyterian scholars could do it. They wanted people from all the different aspects of Christianity to work so that this Bible could be agreeable to people in all of those different Christian communities. And so again, they were marketing a, a broader category of people that were out there. And so they developed these, these teams of scholars. And, and some of these guys, when you look at their PhDs and their pedigrees, are amazing. Um, we have to realize this, though. In the area of translation, uh, translating from one language to another is one thing. But sometimes the guys that do that go beyond translating and they actually go to interpreting. Uh, there's always an element of interpreting, and you interpret according to your, your theological bias. To translate just to translate a word into an equivalent from one language to another is one thing, but when you get to a difficult passage and you say, okay, I've got options here. It could mean this, or it could mean this, or it could mean this. I pick this one. Why? Because that's consistent with my theological background. And so you're going to find that some of the translations are more generic in nature. Some of the translations are a little more liberal. They're going to use that because that is the dominant force in the committee. Uh, you take a Bible like the ESV, which I love. A lot of your great scholars in the ESV committees now were very strongly formed, which means that when those scholars came to difficult passages and they had choices, they would pick the choice that was consistent with their Reformed theology. And that's why a lot of your real strong five-point Calvinists and your Baptist people like the new ESV because it works well with their already accepted statements of faith. And so you'll find some of the Bibles that do that uh, as they go through. Now, we've got three models. The three models, you might have to quit with this. Your three models of translation. And uh, you can put this up. There's the, a diagram in the, the 
the manuscript that I sent you, uh, Rick, and you can throw this up. But there are three primary schools of translation. The first one is what we call formal correspondence. Uh, it's affectionately called the word-for-word -word translation. It's where they start with the original language and they try to associate one English word with one word in the Hebrew or the Greek. And whenever that Hebrew word comes up, they try to consistently translate it the same way all the time in the English. So you're getting a very literal word-for-word -word relationship, one word English to one word in the original. And when the original, the structure is a little bit awkward, then the literal will be just a little bit awkward too. It will reflect now the structure and the characteristic, but it's going to be very accurate to the order and the consistency. And for scholars, they want an English translation that will reflect as much as possible the original that's back there. And so you've got some translations that that utilize what we call a formal correspondence. And these are very literal translations. And I'll talk about some of those. You go to the next one, and this is going down, and this is what we call dynamic equivalent. Dynamic equivalent is more recent. Right? It came about into existence back in the 70s. And it's where they're not concerned about one word for one word, but they're concerned about the thoughts from one language conveyed into the language, understandable language, now that it's being transmitted into. And so instead of just duplicating an exact word, what happens when words change? And all, all languages evolve, all languages change. And so what a word meant 40 years ago, it may not mean the same now because our culture has brought in different you know, changes there. So I'm not so much concerned about an exact word as, as what is the idea or the thought that's being conveyed. So. If it uses an idiom, I need to be able to express that idiom in contemporary English. And so I'm going to do a little bit more interpreting at this point here to make sure that the English audience will, will understand that idea. And so these Bibles are a little more readable. They're a little more contemporary in nature. And there, people find good personal devotions for map are designed for. Uh, the NIV fits right in there. And the NIV was designed to be a pulpit Bible. It could be read public and people would understand it because it had a vocabulary that was consistent with the 1970s and then the update that came later and so forth. Your third area is these are called paraphrases. And your paraphrases are not really translations. They're just kind of rewording. Uh, they will start now with a translation. They do not start with the originals. They start with another English translation and they will just reword that translation. For instance, Ken Taylor, when he did the original Living Bible back in the late 60s and early 70s, he used, now I think it was the American Standard Version, 1901 American Standard. It was very literal, but it was very difficult for some people to understand. And so he went back and he translated it into what we call the Living Bible at that point. And so he didn't study the original language. He just went from the English text, rewording it in a way that he thought would be understandable, primarily for his children. That's why he did it. He wanted a Bible that his kids could read and understand it. Uh, when the message came out, it did the same thing. Uh, the Passion Version comes out, basically it's following a similar format to that. But there's a challenge with that because if they don't go back to the original, but they go back to a translation, then this new paraphrase is actually two translations away from an original. Right. We've gone from the original, say for instance, the Stephanus text of the King James, but now I go from the King James to the living or whatever. And so 
the further you go out and the more translations, the more chances there are for errors. And uh, it's going to be less accurate at that point. So the paraphrases, although they're fun to read sometimes, and people like them because they're so personal and everything else, yet sometimes they lack real accuracy when it comes to the original text and what was in. So imagine we'll close with this then today, and you can you can put uh, you can put that little diagram that's in the document I gave you. Put a spectrum up. At one end of the spectrum is very literal. These are the ones that are trying to be as consistent as possible. And the other end are the paraphrases. And these are the ones that are very free. Their theology is a little loose. They don't always follow the structure and everything exactly. And in the middle now are the dynamic equivalents. They want it to be literal as possible, but as readable as possible. And all of your English translations are going to basically follow and fall in that spectrum. So at the extreme literal end, you've got the 1901 American Standard Version, what's considered to be the, the most literal of all of them. You've got the King James, you've got the New American Standard, the ESV. Those are going to be right there on that very literal end. On the other end, you're going to have the message. You're going to have the Passion Version that's going to be there. You're going to have the Cotton Patch Version that's going to be there and so forth. Uh, those are going to be over on that paraphrastic end and they don't make very good study tools. In the middle, you're gonna have those things like your NIV, your New Living Translation that's gonna be there. Um, those are kind of meant to be readable, but also accurate. You could use them for devotions and study in there and so forth. Somewhere between that is the new CSB, and so what I've been utilizing for the last year or so. It's more literal than the NIV, but it reads very nice. And so they're trying to find, where's this balance? Where is yeah. this? So my recommendation then is people ask me all the time, this is money, what's the best Bible to study? Well, it depends what you want to use it for. If you are a student and you are very much into Bible study and you want to know all the details, you're going to need to find a Bible that's probably a little more on the literal end of that because you want the names of locations, you want the structure of the grammar to be as consistent with the original as you can. So I've taught for 23 years out of my new American standard. I've been teaching for half a year now at the CSB and so forth. And, and I use this because I want to know the literal. It's my job as a teacher to embellish and explain it, but I want a translation that I can rely upon. If I'm a preacher and I'm just using it for a lap Bible and I'm for my devotions, then I can pick one of the ones in the middle, the New Living and so forth in the middle of the, the New English version or the New English Translation, the Net Bible, and so forth, and some of you will have that in your Bible translation. That's a good combination between a study Bible and just a good devotional Bible, and the others are fun and so forth, and we use them, but, you know, the rule of thumb is you use the translation that agrees with your theology, so that's why a lot of people use the message. They use the message when they like what it says, it agrees, but they don't like it when it disagrees with it, and so forth. So you pick the Bible that is consistent with it. And that it's impossible to say that one is best. I can recommend people. I love the ESV, but it's not as easy to read. And some people may struggle with it, especially a young yeah. reader, like a child and so forth. They may struggle with it a little bit more. So I may go back and say, why don't you try an NLT? It reads just a little easier. It flows a little bit better. It's uh, at about a fifth grade reading level instead of a sixth or seventh grade reading level. So maybe it's a good option for you at that point. So. 
Oh, that's so good. Um, I was, that's exactly the question I was going to ask you. So I'm glad you answered it preemptively is, is really, you know, what are the right kinds of functions and places for those different translations? Uh, you know, where do they fit in, in the mix? And, um, and actually it's kind of nice that we have this many uh, options in the English language. You can almost do a word study. I, I don't know. It's like, strict, you know, Bible study. We'll talk more about that in another episode, but um, you can almost do a word study just by looking at all the different parallels and all the different ways that they've translated it to go, oh, wow, okay, there's, there's, you know, like four different words that they used and they're all related to each other. But wow, that, that paints a broader picture and you can kind of just process the way, you know, four different scholars uh, translated one particular verse or how how they comparatively did it between a word-for-word -word translation to a thought-for-thought -thought to then a paraphrase to go huh that's you know that's an interesting uh, you know tra road that they traveled with with that content and so um, and ultimately what we're looking for in this process is and I, I like how you, you said you know hey if it's a kid uh, or a young person, you know, and you want to start them off with something that reads easier. It may not be as literal, but boy, it's going to give them a great start because the NLT, sure, it's probably got some things here and there that aren't perfect, but but it's great. It's a great translation. It, it does a good job of honoring the original text, and so when you can get somebody to to have that, like, oh, it's not so hard to process what I'm reading, then it gives people a chance to, I don't know, kind of taste and see, you know, that the word of God is good. And then as they get that hunger stirred up and they want to do more in-depth study, then they can go to the, the more literal word for word translations. Um, like now where I'm at, I, I love the ESV. I uh, actually was just gifted uh, a couple of, like right before we got into isolation, I was gifted uh, an ESV study Bible, beautiful leather bound. It's got my name imprinted on the front. And I, I was like, man, I feel so loved and blessed right now. So I've been totally geeking out on that uh, during uh, during isolation time. Uh, just fun to dig into the Word of God. And so, um, have you ever read the book uh, How to Choose a Translation for All It's Worth? I've. Uh... Yeah, I've looked at it. Uh, Gordon Fee, when he produces his material, he's written a, a series of them. Um, one of them is uh, How to Read the Bible Book by Book. Uh, and uh, he goes through, and what he tries to do is, is to highlight the, the strengths and the weaknesses of the different translations, just much like what we've tried to do here in the last couple of minutes. And so in doing that, trying to show a little bit of maybe uh, the strengths and the weaknesses that come out in that, a little bit about the history so you know why was this translation brought up, what can you expect to find in it, what are some of the biases or influences that you might. But Gordon Fee is a great scholar, and uh, he's one of my all-time heroes. And so when he takes a big topic like that, which can be extremely prejudicial in nature uh, and biased, I mean, Rick, you know enough to know that you go to some churches across the United States, and if you do not read from the King James, you are a heretic. Yeah, and it's just it's that simple. Everything else is a cookbook, and uh, to them, and 
So for it to have a guy like him, who's a world-class scholar, and he can go through and say, okay, this is a really a good translation for these reasons. This is out of strength in there and so forth. I appreciate somebody of that caliber. Yeah, I've really appreciated kind of that series of books. I actually think that his book, um, How to Read the Bible Book by Book, I think that the section in that book, just on the book of Psalms, uh, like it's worth the price of the book just for that one, yeah. because it, uh, if, if I hadn't taken a, a class in Bible college from you and learned about the book of Psalms in an Old Testament survey, um, like, I, you know, Psalms can be a little confusing if you don't know how like Hebrew poetry works and how the structure of the book is laid out and why are there five books inside of the book? And, you know, is it Psalm or Psalms? You know, how do I, how do I even quote this? You know? And so, um, so yeah, I, I highly recommend that book just for the way that it talks about imprecatory Psalms and all, you know, the different types of Psalms and how to read them and what they mean. And so basically it's kind of like just uh, scratching the surface here in these conversations that we're having of, all of the, the riches that are in the word of God. And again, the reason that we even talk about it is so that we can be those that can rightly divide the word of truth and understand rightly the revelation that God's trying to give us. Because if the word of God um, is to reveal who he is to us, we better understand what the, what the original writers meant in their context and be able to then pull it appropriately into our context. And so I'm excited that we'll actually get to talk a little bit about that process in upcoming episodes. We'll, we'll talk about um, a little bit about hermeneutics, uh, kind of a scary word, but you know, something that we all need to know um, some about in order to rightly handle the word of God. And we'll talk um, a little bit about um, some, some tools, some tools to help us do that. And then in the end, talk a little bit about even some specific types of Bible study uh, assignments that you can give yourself, as we talked about in the last episode, how assignments can be a great way for us to then take this great idea of studying the Bible and actually go and do it so that we can learn. And, and again, going back to what we said last week, hear, obey, and then give or teach. And so I love that. So in the show notes, we're going to leave uh, a link actually uh, to that message that Lanny preached. Uh, I think that'd be, we'll, we'll throw in the YouTube link to that one. And so hopefully you were dressed okay that day. Uh, you looked really sharp. You had a PV, PVC t-shirt with an overcoat on, looked really good. Um, and then uh, I, I'm actually going to put in a link to the How to Choose a Translation for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee. I think that's worthwhile. And then also drop in a link to uh, that uh, Bible translation continuum so you can kind of see the chart that Lanny referenced in this episode and so uh, boy uh, again thank you Lanny thank you for taking time to be a part of this and uh, you're 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 blessing me with the content and I know it's going to be a real big blessing to the listening audience as well um, and guys with this great content coming forth uh, just ask you to to like and comment and uh, share and rate the podcast. Every rating that we get, every comment that we get just helps more people be able to more easily find the podcast and be able to have access uh, to these materials. It is just our heart to help equip and, and strengthen the body of Christ to do the Great Commission. Uh, while fulfilling the great commandment, loving God and loving people. So um, 
It is uh, an honor to have you a part of our audience. If you'd like to reach out to me at all, uh, you can reach me at rickm at manorhouse.church. Love to hear your questions, your comments. Um, Lanny would like to hear your snide remarks. And um, if you have any ideas uh, for future episodes, feel free to hit me up there, uh, rickm at manorhouse.church. And with that, uh, Lanny and I just wish you a great day. God bless you. Uh, may his face of favor shine upon you, be gracious to you, and give you peace. God bless you.